Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Did you become friends with Chris Haka through that? In through the, the telecom stuff? Yeah. No, I became, he was doing the Google stuff, right? He was, but he was doing that very secret. So I moved here, whatever, early 2000s. Yeah. Uh, sold that second company, and then I was angel investing. Right. And for a long time in angel investing, I have a couple of companies that, like, the ops meetings, we could call it board of directors, was me, Naval, Jeff Clavier, Keith. Like, literally, everybody just sitting around the table, which is kind of funny when you look at it today. There's a lot of firepower around that room. And yeah, so Chris and I were just angel investing in the old school way before AngelList, before, you know, you had to really put your own syndicates together, you know, it was old school. So we just all got to know each other that way. And he and I invested in a couple of things together. And then he started pulling his fund together, his first fund. And surprisingly, like, I wouldn't say a lot of people, but some people didn't get it. They were like, and I was, I always thought it was like, well, you're not going to lose any money on this first fund because he's contributing like Twitter stock and, you know, his personal holdings to the fund. And so... How many venture funds do you commit to where you basically know you're going to get your money back? At least your money back. I was like, okay, let's do it. Plus it's Chris. I'm like, I know he's, he's an amazing, and Chris is a, is a realist. Like he's no longer venture investing. And I think the reason is because he's so, he's such a realist in the sense of like, he knew that he had a zone, a window of time where he just had comparative advantage to everybody else in that particular dynamic of social mobile, whatever was going on at that moment. And he was very, very strong for a number of years. Was it, he was in the flow? He was in the flow, the com- just the combination of things, the flow, the Google, the thing, the background where he was, certain people he met, Twitter, of course, Twitter was a major, you know, which was Odeo, but then it became Twitter. Twitter was his first investment? Uh, no, no, no. His first angel investment? Yeah. No, no. He'd had a couple others. But w- Uber was early too? Uber was early in the fund. Yeah. It was not a contribution. That was an actual fund investment. Yeah. Yes. But of the, um, the pre-fund, if you want to call it that, yeah. was effectively his personal angel investments, which included, I think the most memorable, I'm probably missing one or two, but the most memorable for me was Twitter, which at the time was still mm, three or four years maybe away from going public. I can't remember exactly when they went public, but it was very clear. I mean, I was a Twitter user. It was very clear that they were a large social, a large network of some kind, Uh, maybe not a Facebook at the time, but it was certainly something. And so, you you know, it was like that obviously is going to have some value. So again, it was just like, to me, it was all, plus, I mean, mostly it was just because I knew Chris was just an incredible, he's an, inc- because I'd angel invested with him and been at a few, you know, founder meetings with him and ops meetings. I just knew what kind of an amazing investor he was. So, right. but he's, it's not surprising to me at all that he retired because I think he's just a very realistic person. I think if he, he's either in something and it's a thousand percent and he has a comparative advantage and he knows what he's doing. To be a venture investor just for the sake of being a venture investor, to make money or whatever the dynamic might be or whatever. That's just, I don't see that being his thing. So I'm not, I'm not surprised at all that he's not doing it anymore. And now his thing is politics? Basically politics. Yeah. It's the intersection of what I would say is take everything he's learned from startup land and apply it to the world of politics. Right. And in particular, in his case, democratic politics. Yeah. That'd be exciting. I think we could use more. I think so. I mean, I like, I like the, I'm on his distribution list. I see the, you know, the organizations he works with and he's supporting. And I happen to not be a, be a very politically involved right. person by design. Also in the GovTech fund, 
we, you know, we don't lobby anybody. Right. We, and you have to be in neutral, right? We're completely apolitical. Yeah. We're just, we're technologists, right? Yeah. So we have nothing to do with politics. And in fact, that whole world is what we refer to as civic tech, which is elections, voting, all this kind of stuff. It's got nothing to do with what we work on. So in that way, I'm a little bit removed uh, by design. Also being originally Canadian, right, which was the driver of how I got into GovTech in the first place. I wanted to just get, I was, I was actually going to work on some like Senate campaigns and political campaigns, but. The driver being that in Canada, you experienced this problem or, or what, what is the driver? No, the driver was I became a U.S. citizen. Right. You had to become a U.S. citizen in 2009. And um, it was both a frustrating experience. I actually applied for my my residency, citizenship. The whole I started the process in August of two thousand and one. So like basically a month before nine eleven. And I don't know this for a fact, but just because I have a lot of friends that kind of went through a similar process, yeah. I feel like when nine eleven happened, whoever was in that pile, <laughs> we all got kind of pushed to the side because it took a very long time, unusually long. But no, then I, you know, I really, I became a citizen and then I really, I know it sounds a little bit altruistic, but I just wanted to give back. Yeah. You know, I was, I mean, I'm, this was my country. Yeah. I had kids at that point, right. done a couple of startups. I mean, living the American dream and it was just awesome. So I was like, how do I give back? And politics was not it. Right. Once I got into it, once I realized what, how it worked here, it just, it just wasn't appealing for me. Making government better. Yeah. What, what appealed to me was more the intersection of technology and government. And so, and I didn't even realize that was happening until I started sort of poking around. And then there were a whole bunch of conversations going on in the Valley. People like Tim O'Reilly, you know, thinkers in the Valley, people who spent a lot of time thinking, were talking about this topic, about here's everything that's gone in the enterprise corporate America. And it, the interesting thing to me was, hey, this is, this isn't if it's going to happen. It's when this is, this is definitely coming to government. And when it does, actually the thing that attracted me most was thinking, very meta about like, what is the role of government? What does society look like when you have this kind of technology? That's why when you're kind of going on a journey and you're sort of hanging around and you're just, you, I'm not, I wasn't going there because I want to start a GovTech fund. <laughs> I was going there because I was just genuinely curious. And that intellectual curiosity takes you down a path. And then you're like, this is kind of cool to think about. Like, that's right. What happens when, right? And so then out of that came Code for America and that's how I got started. Right. And when you say when, not if, but when, when what? When, when government cloud hits government. When mobile hits I mean, I'm repeating things that I think most yeah. venture would know from the corporate side. But yeah. when mobile hits, when bring your own device hits, yeah. when consumer uh, citizens, yeah. when consumers come to expect their government to look like what they see on their smartphone, you know, these kinds of dynamics. When the retirement thing happens, which you yeah. could see was happening in real time. Right. You know, like it was only a couple of years ago, like half of L.A.'s. IT department retired, like gone. And you go talk, to, I would talk to these CIOs and head of agencies and departments. And they're like, yeah, we have just lost half our staff and more are retiring. And we have these legacy systems and no one knows how to maintain them. So they're trying to do like, Hey, maybe we can have them as consultants. Maybe we can just hang on to some of the, you know, folks have been around for a long time, but you knew that that game was up. And eventually what's going to happen is a bunch of 20, 30 year olds are coming in, yeah. taking over those spots. So when all that comes together, and then, okay, so those are the drivers, but then you say, well, okay, but look what technology has done in how organizations are run in, in corporate, yeah. in global corporate, not just corporate America, but like around the world. How we operate companies today, how we organize, how we work, what's possible, 
all of it. I mean, think about, all, of course, the impact of technology, right? So it's just like, wow, this is governments are a pretty important part of sec- a sector of society. And you could basically say that they were absent really modern technologies until about 10 years ago. And were the bottlenecks there bureaucratic? What were the bottlenecks there? No, I think that, I think primarily there was, there's a, a few things. So first of all, you know, just the, emer- I think there are technologies that have emerged over the last decade or two that have driven in general, the ability to deploy technology faster, costs have come down dramatically, all the curves, I think just, they were taking a while to get to government. Yeah. And I think that there's a certain level of risk aversity. Government employees were generally averse. And actually, I think that there's logic to that. I don't think that Considering the role government plays, I don't think we as a society want government to necessarily be bleeding edge, you know, with respect to technology. There's a lot of sensitive information there. There's a lot of process. Also, sometimes some of a, a good number of programs are dealing with individuals who may not have access to technology. Like you just have to think at a certain pace. Not everything looks like Silicon Valley, right? So, so I think that's part of it. And then I think there's also a part of it, which is, just a, a mental state of mind, which is that they governments were used to working in a with large contractors, not agile, you know, sort of older waterfall development. We are the government. We will spend years developing requirements. Yeah. Then we will work with our contractor. Then they will, you know, like literally five, six, seven, eight year, you know, cycles. Don't forget, a lot of people come from the military industrial complex. Right. It might take, I don't know, how long does it take to build, a, to design a new jet? A new fighter jet could be 20 years on the board, on the, right? On the blueprints, on the making, right? So I just think that a lot of this mentality was new for government um, to think about agile, which was really, like I said before, I was, I got into this. My first entree into government was through Code for America right. as an early volunteer there. And really the mission of Code for America back then, and even to this day, was basically to show people what was possible. And so there's years of education that have gone on to expose government employees to what what is effectively done in Silicon Valley. Yeah. I don't mean Silicon Valley the place, I mean just like the, the you know the idea of, of of what Silicon Valley does broadly speaking. I'm here with Ron Buganim. You are a serial entrepreneur. You started a telecom business. What was the second business? In the world of digital rights management, we were some of the first folks to do digital watermarking. Back then, the only way you do copy protection was on a physical CD-ROM. And so the whole world was moving to downloadable models, software, games, everything else. If you want to download some software, you need some anti-piracy. You need some, you need some DRM. And there were no, there was no app store. There were no monopolies of Google and Apple and all these kinds of things where like, you know, they lock it all down, right? Back then, it was kind of a free-for-all. Huh. And what happened? Uh, the business was great. I mean, I, th- I thought it was a really fun. We, it, the business started really as a licensing business. Yeah. Basically, a tech, you know, like, hey, software company building XYZ content. You should look at a downloadable model because that's going to save you a whole bunch of distribution. What's funny is a side story. We actually had conversations with Amazon. <laughs> this is in 2003, wow. four, or 5, saying like, hey, you sell a lot of games. People like you ship boxes to people, like video games. Yeah. Well, gamers... Because remember, people are still getting online and everything. Yeah. Gamers of all internet users tend to be more advanced. They have advanced machines. They have broadband connections. They want to play games. And so the downloadable thing is going to be your, that's going to be the way you make money. Never mind movies and Netflix yeah. and all that. Kind of, and literally people at Amazon were like, this is never going to happen. Which is kind of funny, right? Because yeah. now, of course, it's like a major part of the revenue stream. But anyway, as there, as everybody was moving to that world, first it started as a licensing business, like here's digital rights, here's DRM technology, 
that you can embed in your software. And again, we were mostly focused on the game space. But then it turned into a distribution business because basically at that point we had secured 10,000 SKUs of games, individual games. And we were, it's great. They were protecting them, but many, many game developers had, had no idea how to market their games. Like, what do we do? Do we set up a website? Like, so we ended up running the game store for Yahoo, MSN, all the major websites. I think even to this day, maybe <laughs> Yahoo games looks and feels like Yahoo, but a lot of the back end components of what drives their casual gaming section and mobile this was my former company. Yeah. And then you started another company. Well, after that, so that company got sold in 2006. And then basically since 2006, I've just, I, before I got into the GovTech fund, there was a, f- I'm going to say a five-year period of, you know, I'd already done two startups. My, my son, my first child was born in 2006. And at that point, I think people go through this, which is, I just want to take a different journey. I was, I wasn't, I actually was thinking about doing a third startup and my wife was like, not a chance. Or just take a break. Like it's super intense, right? You, you, you know that as well from your background. It's super intense. And, um, I, and I I was fine with that. And so basically at that point, I started angel investing. We were just chatting about that a little bit ago. I became an LP in a couple of funds. I started, you know, just projects with friends, consulting a little bit. I stepped in as COO for a friend's company for a little bit. I was just, I was sort of hanging out. And then the other thing that happened right around that time is my son was growing up and was starting preschool. And so as it, this is a long story, but basically my wife and I became part of the pioneer families. We started a school. And so that school started in 2009. The school is called Presidio Knowles, PKS, pre-K. So we started at two and a half years old. It's a Mandarin immersion, a progressive Mandarin immersion school. So it's literally 100% Mandarin all day long. And now we are in the sixth grade. We're adding a grade a year. And my son, who was in that, he's still in the pioneer class. And his class now uh, is about, is about 14 kids. There's 350 kids at the school now. And my daughter goes there as well. She's two years behind. I was just thinking about, could there be an Airbnb for homeschool? I just, I'm curious for people to make more experiments within within yeah you're doing it a different way yeah no that's fascinating thought i mean i what i will say and i think it's maybe particular to the bay area a surprising number of people i know actually homeschool their kids um it's an incredible if it takes a lot of work um, but if you can manage it and if you're uh, you're already doing it for your own kids that's why the airbnb for is not a crazy idea in the sense that what's happening is um effectively they're sort of pairing up already like there's it's sort of organically happens yeah so um but no this the school sort of ended up taking up a lot of time Uh, we were not expecting i was really we were only considering for preschool but and this is probably another topic for another podcast but the san francisco public school system is challenging and my wife and i were very committed to staying in the city Uh, we want to make a life here and so we just kept going with the school before leaving that topic is there any besides the mandarin any other non-obvious or game-changing uh, differences that you think you've imbued your school with relative to other schools? Well, I mean, yes and no. So I would say the progressive dynamic, which is a child-centered unit of inquiry model, we didn't come up with that. That's There's a lot of progressive schools, East Coast, I mean, hundreds of years. The Why I would answer the question yes to your, is because trying to do progressive in a Mandarin context. So all of our teachers are from China. Uh, they will do bachelor's degrees. They're, they're doing math. We recruit locally masters and PhD students here, but they've grown up in China. And by and large, the Chinese education system is not progressive. Right. So that has been 
a significant challenge and it's been a wonderful, that's been the most amazing thing is how do you implement progressive methodologies in a, in a Mandarin context. Dana Gross came on the podcast and he talked about how it would be game changing if, if, if all the school did was start classes at 11 a.m. and go, go later yeah. to be more in sync with how kids sleep and wake up. Oh, I'm, I'm, uh, I've been, I couldn't agree. I've, I've been talking about this for a long time. The whole agrarian school timing thing is just bizarre that we continue to do that. I am quite sure that's going to change in the future. It's just a legacy of where we all came from. There is no reason that children need to be in school between eight and three. Who said so? And frankly, like, as it turns out, for the last 15 years, every summer as a family, um, my father-in-law, uh, he passed away last year, but he he lived in France. And so we used to go and spend basically every summer in Europe with him, but also just in Europe generally. And so what happens, and I'm working, like startups, my fund, I mean, I'm working. And what would happen is I would end up spending the entire day with the family because of the time difference. And then dinner, and I would start my work day. And my work day would basically start, I've been doing this for 15 years. Six o'clock, my work day starts PM. Yes, I do work late. I work well into the, you know, early hours of the night, but my kids, like the whole idea of having a completely time shifted life, it seemed very feasible to me. But again, there's just like not everyone has the same flexible schedule. Like it's, it's a little bit, you know, not realistic for everybody, but, uh, the theory of it. To your point, is completely unaligned with that. GovTech Fund. So my question before you get getting into the sector is you're an angel investor, you're in rooms with, you know, your friends with Chris Saka, you're an early angel investor with Keith or Boys investing, Navalis investing. Those investors have become generalist investors. Correct. You uh presumably when you started perhaps were, were generalist. Why focus on GovTech? Obviously you're excited about it, but why not be a generalist fund that do, does a portion of it, GovTech? Well, I actually never had sort of a vision of becoming a venture capitalist. So I was, I, I was not interested in starting a generalist fund. I wasn't even interested in starting a fund. <laughs> the, the GovTech fund today is absolutely a, uh, it's a derivative. It's a result, not, not an intention, right? So the way it came together is that I was just, I was hanging out at Code for America. I was, like I said, one of the early investor, uh, volunteers. I rent, I, I started to see the changes that we talked about a moment ago. In these government agencies. And in 2011, after volunteering for a little while, myself, Tim O'Reilly, some other folks, we said, why don't we start an accelerator? Uh, because we're pretty sure companies are out there working on this stuff. It feels like the window has opened. Startups, we're working. So when we launched the accelerator, that was another data point. It was like, we thought maybe 10 companies would show up. We had 250 companies apply. And we we're like, who are you? Why are you even here? And so over three years, I ran that accelerator, again, volunteering. I was the volunteer executive director or whatever. We saw 1,500 companies apply. That's a lot. And so the reason, the answer to your question about why I started the fund was more because I saw all of those trends we talked about a moment ago. Here I am running an accelerator. We did six or seven companies per class. We only had one class a year. So maybe I'd seen 20 companies go through the accelerator. I'm seeing sales cycles drop dramatically, like under a quarter. And I'm just seeing a lot of data points that didn't resonate with what I thought government was supposed to be. Plus, I had spoken to hundreds of people in government. So I was validating that data. And so basically, also, as the industry was kind of growing up, and I'm going to the Code for America conference and all these kinds of things that were, at that point, the first conference I went to was literally like 20 people in a room. Now it's 2,000 people. When you see that kind of momentum, 
And I'm looking around the room. The only people in the room at those conferences were amazing government people, engineers. There's no investors. None of my investor friends were there. And so I used to invite them to the demo days and they would come and all. But literally, the only reason I started the fund is because I went around, I actually spoke to a bunch of my venture friends. I won't name names. And I was like, why don't you, don't pay me anything. I'll be a venture partner. Just set aside 5 million bucks and I'll send you deals. And they wouldn't do it. And it's not because I'm so smart and they're not. No, it's because asymmetric information. I just knew a lot more about a vertical than they did. And so I looked at it. I'm like, this is a massive space with big sector changes and right and and massive trends. I know a little bit about angel investing. Like I know what I'm, I think I know what I'm doing here. And I'm telling you, this is a space. And if everyone else is saying no, and I was like, God, I don't want to raise a fund. I know how hard that is because I'm an, I'm an LP. I was like, all right, well, I guess at some point you just be like, well, this is my conviction. I'm going for it. So that's why I raised the fund, not because I was trying to, you know, uh, because I wanted to go into venture and then I was thinking, what should I do in venture? No. And when you, when you say you're talking to hundreds of people in government, is that people who work at Congress? Is that politicians? Is that? No. No, no, nobody, nobody on the politics side, really. I mean, uh, save for, let's say, the executive. So like I would speak to mayors or governors and so on. And that's important because they set a tone, but they don't do the real work, right? That's, that's okay. That's their job. No, the, what I'm referring to is like kind of in the weeds, you know, somebody, a procurement officer. Police officer, uh, head of social services, you know, the people that actually run the agencies and do the day-to-day work of government, that's who I was talking to. Got it. So talk about what is the scope of what you invest in at GovTech? How do you, let's make up sort of a market map of the different segments and sub-segments that you will invest in and consider. Sure. So let's just first talk about, you know, so the focus of the fund, right? We're investing in startups that are modernizing the operations of government. Right. So it's the day to day. So if you think about what governments do every day, it's literally thousands of things. Right. If you want to map it, you know, you can look at administrative and finance, you know, uh, air departments, human services, health services, public safety, transportation, public works. I mean, you just go on and on and on. Think about sort of local and state. Just then think about the federal. If you think about the military and armed services. So. You know, it's the single biggest part of the economy, right? There's something like five times as many employees in government as there are all of the fortune that the Dow Jones 30 combined, right? If you add up like, I don't know, Walmart and micro, that's, you know, they have like a few, maybe a million, a couple million. The U.S. government has 23 million people that work there. So it's by far the biggest, I'll say, sort of enterprise, right? It's not a company, obviously, but, it, but as an enterprise goes, it's the biggest enterprise in America. And so that one way of thinking about it in the way that I think about the market, the map is, of course, local, state and federal. And then within those, there are these departments. I just mentioned those areas and there are probably 20 different major areas. But then underneath that, you're going to have hundreds of subspecialties and each one of those subspecialties and sub departments, let's call them sub departments, yeah. is going to have, in some cases, billions of dollars of budget. And then that all gets rolled up into trillions of dollars, right? So that's, that's the government. Now, so I, so to answer your question, I think about it in a vertical way, but then there are horizontal, right? So the horizontal part of the map is functions that appear across basically all of those departments. So things like procurement, things like forms. We together are investors in a company called SEMA. And so that's all about legacy infrastructure and tech and, and sort of the IT underlying. So there's just like any company, there's, you know, vertical departments and there's people that's, 
There are groups within government for whom the agencies are their internal customers. Think of it that way. So it's a classic sort of vertical and horizontal, and that's how I think about it as well. And you also differentiate between GovTech and civic tech. Is that correct? Correct. So the way to think about GovTech is, as I said earlier, it's the operations of government. So for folks who can get this analogy, it's kind of like the operating system of government. And then civic tech is really about the operating system of the citizen. That's what we like to think of it as. So that has, that's important, right? Cause that's about democracy and elections and advocacy and, and community organizing and all the things that make the democratic side of society work. But you don't focus there? We don't touch that. Because not your specialty. Don't believe in it. I or, believe it as a citizen. Yeah, of course, but believe it, it could be uh, multi-billion dollars. It's, it, frankly, it's, I think there's challenges around business models there. But even that, I'm just so busy focused honestly on the, on what I'm trying to do. It's, there's, there's so much to do. And I'm only really, we're only chatting now about the US government. Don't forget, there's like, I don't know, 190 countries or whatever it is on the world. Every government around the world is basically screwed. <laughs> I mean, basically, they, they are all living and working with legacy technology. And that has huge impact on the delivery of services which we, I just mentioned a few of the verticals. And even though we don't invest in civic tech, the technology also impacts the civic tech side. And so governments around the world, and we talk to them all the time, are freaking out because if they don't deliver the services, people don't trust government. If they don't, governments around the world are really struggling, as you've seen, with social media. How, what does it mean to govern in the world? Of, well, again, we at the GovTech Fund don't touch the governing side, but it's super fascinating. What is the impact of AI? What's the impact of blockchain? All of these buzzy things, well, you know, they're going to be real. They already are real in many instances, and they're going to have fundamental impact on the money supply, right? Uh, artificial intelligence is going to radically transform economies, Governments are involved in the management of their economies, right? So all of these things um, are all tech-related. And governments were organized at a time over the last hundreds of years in the, let's say, Western dem democracies. They were all organized in a time when just tech didn't yeah. come into play. Yeah. And so that that defined what the role of government is. It defined what services they provide and I'm just suggesting that technology is going to transform the very role of government, both on the delivery of services where we focus, but also on how they govern, which is where we don't. But still, that's going to impact you and I as citizens. Right. If, if we look at the last, say, 20 years, how has the space evolved over time? Were there startups in the late 90s or early 2000s tackling this with a, this, this space with any sort of success? Or when did you start to see startups really emerge? and, and be, Because I guess the, one, the popular one that people hear about is Palantir. Yeah. So I would say that, um, at least the way that I think about it, there's sort of, we're in that third generation. So, and um, you picked the last 20 years and that's probably a good time frame. If you want to go back further into like the sixties and stuff like that, then obviously that's a, there's a whole different generation of tech there. But, but what's funny about that is there are still not a small number of government agencies and cities and, that are still running COBOL. That's what seventies, I think sixties, seventies. There are places that still have mainframes, punch cards. So I, we can go that far back if we want to. But anyway, in the last 20 years, let's just start with sort of like, I look at sort of the first generation as kind of uh, like the e-gov uh, companies. These were like in the late 90s. Basically, uh, like a lot of companies in the 90s, uh, were experimenting with what the unit economics and impact of the internet could be. 
And so they basically tried to sort of modernize or e put an E in front of whatever they were doing uh, and go to government and say, hey, here's our new e-procurement solution or whatever it was. And the reality of those gov- of those companies, people always ask me about GovWorks, which was a famous uh, documentary and so on. Those companies just had no chance. And the reason they had no chance is because it may have been new and innovative and all the rest, but the reality of the cost structure was that it was pretty much the same price as Accenture or IBM. And so at that time, governments were just going to be like, you know what? That sounds cool, but we're just going to go with IBM. Thanks. So that, fa- that they all go away. And then you fast forward to the second generation, which is kind of post.com crash, let's say 2004 through 10, something like that. And uh, that's where Palantir comes along and so on. And what you see there is a group of companies that are starting to see the benefits of the cost structure and the cost curve. Palantir, to its credit, you know, started with some hardcore tech, even to this day. They're renowned for their tech. But it's also largely a consulting practice, right? If you, if you dig into, and that's a good thing, by the way, for them. But that's a, that's a, a hybrid of. Is sort of like the IBM for governments or? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't want to label it for them, but they, they, uh, you know, they, what they, they do amazing work. I, I know a lot of people there. They do amazing work, but it's, you know, it, let's not kid ourselves. It's a very uh, high human, high touch process. Um, and they get paid big bucks for very large contracts and they deserve it because they're adding a lot of value. But that's different than like the third generation of companies, which is what I'm talking, which is what I'm investing in. My companies, if you look at them, they're all pure play SaaS, software as a service, product. We don't customize. We don't consult. We don't contract. We don't build any, you know, it's just, it's exactly what you would, it's literally seats, subscriptions, the whole thing, just like you would look at in, in and that wave of companies really only started I would say in 2010. And that's what led me to then start. I just happened to start the accelerator at that inflection point, kind of with a a guess that that might have been going on. The accelerator that we ran approved that to me. It said that this is happening. And then now as an investor with an actual fund, then I see it in real time. So let's talk about a few of those companies in the third generation, whether you're invested or not, that are working. Um, I'm curious what sort of you know, analogies we make to the traditional enterprise or what companies have worked in traditional enterprise SaaS that now work in GovTech or companies that didn't work, but sort of uniquely work for, for GovTech and, and vice versa. What ones that worked in the enterprise world, but do not work in Gov for, for whatever reason. But let's talk about first ones that, that are working. What are, what are some third generation companies that are? I guess I'd just point to my portfolio. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, those are the ones I know the best, right? <clears throat> you know, so just as background for what it's worth, we, I've, uh, GovTech fund now is two funds. We launched our second seed fund in January of 2018. So it's been about a year, 15 investments out of fund one, also a $25 million fund. And now I think we're on investment six or seven I, on, yeah. on fund two. So we're, we made 21 investments more or less. And, um, some of the folks that are later down the curve were, of course, some of our earlier investments, right? If you, if you look at my portfolio, the average age is only two or three years, right? So, so the folks that are, are, are at that scaling phase where we're talking about hundreds of employees and so on. I have a company called Smart Procure and they're in the procurement space. Procurement is, I'm literally trillions of dollars of spend every year. That's not like a hyperbole. It's literally, you can see the budgets, uh, in aggregate and, um, it's very, very broken. It's very broken. Processes are broken. Compliance requirements force, you know, mandate uh, actions on behalf of, uh, by the, by procurement officers. It's just, it's a very broken space. There's no liquid, there's no marketplaces. There's no liquidity. Workflow is all messed up. So that's an example of a company that is doing very well because they're addressing a very big problem, right? By the way, all my companies do the exact same three things. 
So they're all doing workflow. They go and they do these ride-alongs basically with these, with the, with the employees. So people actually do the work. They're all fixing data. So when you get into the workflow, like Smart Procure, they work, they have workflow for procurement officers. Turns out that the data that procurement officers use to figure out, should I buy this table or that one or this laptop or that laptop? They had no data. The data was in silos. Okay. So now you're talking about Smart Procure has aggregated almost 500 million purchase orders from 24,000 agencies. And you would think that we would have a common format of a government purchase order. Oh no. There are 35,000 formats of a, now it could be small changes. That becomes a big data problem. How do you get all that data in real time? How do you normalize it? The same as any other big data problem. And then how do you make it useful? So that's the second step. They all do the data. And the third thing they're all doing is the insights, analytics, benchmark, actionable intelligence, all the stuff that comes out of the data. So when you ask me the question, which ones are doing well, which ones are so smart procure, of course, because they're early. Mark 43, which is one of my other portfolio companies invested early. Actually, uh, you mentioned Chris Saka, lower cases investor there too. Law enforcement, same problem. Turns out that, you know, lots and lots of police, 50,000 police departments in this country, they're all on legacy tech. The workflow is horrible. You have data in silos, which is not good. If you have data in silos, I'm not going to get into specifics, but let's just say, let me pretend that people could be in jail when they shouldn't be in jail. And the reason that happens is because the arrest report system of record doesn't speak to the evidence database, which doesn't speak to the, right? It's very, very troubling. I'm not saying this, but let's say that you had really siloed data and you're a foster child and you're supposed to be having a a social worker check in with the family every month. And let's just say, I'm not saying this happens, but let's just say that the data was all messed up and people don't check in on you for a year. That's not good, right? This is how society breaks down. Because the connective tissue between us that was sort of the guarantee, implicit guarantee we have in government, like it's supposed to work for us. Yeah. If it doesn't work, there's real issues, right? right? That's what I'm. So this is a good, good example. This is my next question. Basically, what I want to get is sort of request for startups, request for, for, for white space. Let's say I'm an entrepreneur. I come, come to you. I have sort of any set of relevant skills that I would need. And I'm asking, Hey, where's the opportunity GovTech? I, I know I want to build a company in space. I just don't know which space to tackle. How would I think about it? Or if you were going out to start a company in space, how would you sort of analyze where, where to? It's a great question, but just for what it's worth, we don't know entrepreneurs asking us that because the entrepreneurs coming to us, yeah. the, the way that actually most of our companies have started is, and this is, I think, a unique thing about government. You know, government is by definition an open right. in, enterprise. We live in San Francisco here. You can literally, right now, we could walk down to city hall. And with, you have to get through security, you, whatever, simple. You could pretty much after that, you can go into the mayor's office. I mean, it may not be there. She may not be there. You can go see a supervisor. Like it's pretty open. And by definition, we have a number of companies where they're working on just early product market fit. And so how do you do that? Well, customer discovery, you make some phone calls, set up meetings. The number of agencies are like, absolutely. Come on down. Right. That doesn't happen in corporate America. Like you have to deal with like a phone tree and voicemails and assistance and everything else. That's unique, right? I think that kind of insight, government is a, people don't realize how great government is as a customer because of that openness. So my point is that companies coming to us have already largely done some of that work and they've identified the pain points. I will answer your question, just but just as it goes, it turns out it's a really good, and governments, for the most part in our portfolio, they pay upfront 12 months. 24, our average length contract length is almost three years now in the portfolio, which imagine 
I don't know this for a fact, but I'd be willing to sit down with you or any, all my VC friends. I actually would argue that my portfolio is probably some of the most efficient cash in ARR. We have the most cash financing by customers. I would argue. I mean, certainly, I'm in, you know, early investor in PagerDuty and HelloSign and a bunch of other, right? Just compared to what I've seen in those regular enterprise, I'd say we're probably more cash efficient because governments pay up front. They love discounts, all that kind of stuff. So now to your question, white space, the reality of where we are today in government is we're still at what I would call sort of in the weeds rewiring phase. There's a lot of broken, as I mentioned earlier, siloed data, old school workflows, the company we've invested in, SEMA Technologies, which is dealing with legacy code, COBOL, I mentioned that a moment ago. There's a lot of just old. And so the white space is you don't have to think too much. Like don't overthink it. You can go look at any city, state, federal. You can get the breakdown of like every department, right? There's And basically just throw a dart. Because I can almost guarantee you that that department has a workflow that is broken, the data is siloed, and they are doing no analytics, no benchmarking, because there's no transparency. The data is not liquid in government today. That's a pretty big... So the US government spends $150 billion a year on software. Just software. So that's like bigger than online advertising. So as an entrepreneur, you look at that and you say... That's a pretty good place to start. Now, how do I figure out which one to go after? Well, I think that gets back to like any founder. You know, all the founders in our portfolio, uh, my portfolio company, Binti, the founder, it's a, it, they work in the social services adoption space. She, her family has a, has gone through adoption. So like they all have uh, Mark 43 I mentioned earlier, law enforcement. The founders there are super connected, their family who are police officers. You know, there's always a, a reason and a rationale. I don't think people just sort of make up like, let's go do this. But aside from that spark, which would be a connection to why you want to do it, in terms of white space, you were at that super early wiring phase. The other area that I think, so let me be more specific, the areas that the verticals that I would look at, and I mentioned a couple already, I would absolutely look in the procurement space. It's super messed up and it's super big. Yeah. I do like law enforcement, but law enforcement, the sales cycles there are still a little bit longer. So you'd have to be wary of that. I do like companies in the middleware group. So like, so think about like Airbnb, Uber, all these folks. There's now a lot of regulation that says, hey, you're running around our city. We want to tax you. So then they get into fights. Well, we don't want to pay that tax, says Airbnb. And they get into all these fights. Then they finally agree. Yes, we will pay taxes. We'll be, you know, we're going to be like, okay, great. Now, how do you get that data into the city? That's middleware, right? It's like there is, there's no APIs. <laughs> so how do we, how do we API government? That may be a little crude, but that's sort of the essence. Yeah. That middleware layer, I would be spending a lot of time there if I were a startup. And there's a lot of opportunities there. But right now, I would say fund one, fund two, fund three, and so on. We are still way in the weeds. I guess the other aspect is, the GovTech revolution, if you want to call it that, this has all been local. It started, it, a lot of people think government, federal. I have been running the GovTech fund now almost five years. I've been in the GovTech space since 2010, 11, so it's eight, nine years. I've only been in DC for business three times. That just gives you an idea, right? But I can tell you how many times I've been to state capitals. I've been to a lot of small towns and cities you never heard of. And the reason for that is 
all those dynamics we talked about, the, the drivers of what's happening, what's driving GovTech, started really at the local and city level. And actually now in the last two years, counties have gotten on board. Yeah. Now, now more and more of my companies are doing state-level deals. And maybe one or two of my companies are just now accessing the federal government. What's the fourth generation going to look like? Well, I think there's going to be a number of years of this. So let's start. Let's just hang out in this world for a little while before we go to fourth generation. But let's just realistic. And I mean that because, again, like a decade, a decade easily, honestly. And, and, and I would say even at the federal level, like the federal level is now just starting to get organized around this stuff. And so it's easily a decade. Um, but my, but let's just assume that it all gets worked out and all the sort of layer one stuff is done. I do think there's going to be, I know these, I know they're buzzwords, but I do think you will see blockchain, AI, all these kinds of things that are going on right now that people are experimenting and you're going to have ups and downs and all that with that. That's going to work its way in the government. 100%. Yeah, absolutely. Just, you know, machine learning, all these kinds of things that are like the hot topics now in uh, maybe traditional venture. Yeah. They're coming to government. That's actually one of the advantages I like about government is that, yeah, you could say, well, it's a little behind or whatever, but as I mentioned earlier, we don't want our governments being bleeding edge necessarily. The beautiful thing is, I think it's an advantage. I get to I get to hang out with all my VC friends who share all these like crazy things they're working on, and that's great. Some are going to succeed, some are going to fail, and the ones that succeed, I get to take them over to government and make them work. Yeah, it's kind of neat, actually. Yeah. I like that. It de-risks. I actually think as a venture fund, well, I guess time will tell. Yeah. But I, in theory, I will have less zeros than a typical venture fund because. Of this is I'm, I'm sort of dealing in the proven world a little more. And my diligence process is, you know, I'm a sole GP, right? So I don't have any staff. So my diligence process is I talk to agencies every day. Actually, probably like a third to half of my deal flow today comes from the U.S. government. I get calls from government agents. How many VCs do you know that the government is their source of deal flow? I get calls from agencies and they don't say it this way because they don't, but in, right. But just go with me on this, which is they'll say like, have you heard of these folks? If you invest in them, we'll buy their product wow. because they're basically like, we don't want them to go out of business. Right. How do I sell this to my higher up? Yeah. How do I get confidence? Well, we're going to pull together some great investors and that should give you some confidence. You know that. Right. So that's a big deal. And so agencies now are like, I, I mean, I'm constantly in, the, in discussions yeah. with them. We, we are, we're in 25,000 agencies now right. as a group of companies. So that's all. Yeah. There's a big network. Yeah. I mean, do you see yourself building a YC for GovTech startups, like building back the accelerator? No, and not because it's not a good idea. In fact, there are there are a number of accelerators now popping up, startup and residence program. There's a bunch of really great things. It's more just because I know how much work it takes. And I, as a venture investor, um, I have a very, um, a very specific focus area, seed, like a stage. Yeah. I have a very small portfolio. I only like fund one with 15. I'm very concentrated, super involved. Again, people have different views on what the right way to do venture and seed is. I could care less. This is what I like. <laughs> and this is what I think. And I mean, the returns are starting to come in and I see the growth. It's working for us. That's good enough. I, what you will see at the GovTech Fund, which I've been talking about for a very long time, we will be multi-stage. So we will not necessarily just be seed. There are companies now that are growing and so you'll see a growth fund from us and all that. And the, and the reason is because we have companies in our portfolio, but also the next Uber, the next Airbnb, all those kinds of companies, they're already showing up at my doorstep, not because they're building GovTech, but because they've realized the scooter companies, all these, right? They've all realized that government is a customer and they want access to 
25,000. We're adding 10 agencies a day as a group. So they want access to that network. And I think with all humility, we are a great strategic partner for them because we, we sit on the cap table and we deliver actual value, right? And I don't think we threaten anybody. So you will see from us multi stages. You will see um, multiple geographies. We just announced a European partnership. Wow. We'll be launching a GovTech uh, China fund. Those because again, governments around the world. Yeah. It'll be more of an affiliate model. Uh, we won't be on on the ground, but and then what you're also going to see is different kinds of capitals. So right now, we're just doing equity. There is a massive play. You asked about startups. Yeah. If I were a startup, another area to look at is just the, the capital side, debt. So, like as it turns out, you are selling pencils. You get a contract for a million, a million dollar contract. Great. Now you have to make all the pencils and your PO, your purchase order says net 30. Guess what? San Francisco pays you in 287 days. No offense, San Francisco, but like whatever governments just don't. Well, who's financing that? Who's doing the contract uh, receivables financing? Who's doing the PO financing? So we went and talked to all the big banks. They don't do it. Why? Just because they don't understand the space. Well, give me a balance sheet to finance. A purchase order where the counterparty is the U.S. government. What does that credit risk look like? Pretty good to me. So we're going to start doing that stuff and you'll see us pull together, you know, not on my balance sheet, but we'll put together balance sheets and partner with people because we have asymmetric insights as to who the right good vendors are, who's winning the business and who delivers. That's a pretty good credit risk. So I think there'll be multiple components to the GovTech platform. What's the company, if you weren't running a GovTech fund and had to incubate a company within GovTech fund, what's a company you might incubate or, or build? I like the finance one I just mentioned. That's, it's a good one. I would definitely do something like that. I, I, what I would say is the other little sort of secret about GovTech. So we've been having a conversation today about effectively enterprise software as a service. That's why we, we sort of framed it that way. And if you think about that, that makes it a very point solution kind of play. Like we see a problem, we solve a very specific problem, and ideally you're solving it for a lot of agencies, so you build a business. The reality of not all of my companies, but a decent number, is they end up building marketplaces. So what happens, like I mentioned, smart procure procurement. So their customer is government procurement officers. Guess what? There's a million vendors, literally, more actually, that sell stuff to the U.S. government. I'm not talking about jets and submarines. I mean like stuff, chairs, pencils, well, where's that marketplace? Where is the Alibaba, Amazon of government, right? It doesn't exist. And so Amazon tries to like sell their wares in there and everything else. The reality is government plays a convening role. It sits between, in that case, vendors and the government. Food safety. Government plays a convening role between regulators who want to regulate our food supply chain and restaurants and, and the food supply chain, right? Manufacturers, growers, all that stuff. So as it turns out, many of my companies start in a SaaS classic, let's solve a specific point problem. And then they evolve into, hmm, let's sit in between this ecosystem. And they're basically taking over and helping governments run those ecosystems. And that is super interesting as a venture investor, because all of a sudden you move away from classic SaaS metrics exclusively what were you, what was your ACV this month? What were your bookings? All good. I love doing that all day long to marketplace dynamics and scalable growth that goes beyond a direct sales force and all that kind of stuff. And so that's interesting as a venture investor, but at a government level, it's, well, wait a second. Now the role of government is being redefined. 
that is super interesting at a societal level. Yeah. So let's talk more about that. What, what does that look like? Does government become more and more privatized over time? or Not privatized. I think it's more about like in the food safety space, just because I mentioned that example, again, and we're very early. So this is sort of theoretical, but I'm seeing green shoots, as I like to say, right? Like the beginnings of this. So previously, a state health board or whatever, even your local health board would walk into your restaurant and they'd like, you know, yell at you and give you a bad grade because you're, you know, you're not in compliance with whatever. That makes government like a cop, right? You're kind of walking in with a checklist and, and you're the bad, the bad dude coming in. Well, now uh, it turns out that you can make inspections in restaurants, Starbucks, whatever, all mobile, all data, like in real time, employees are doing this stuff on their mobile. So like now all of a sudden you have a massive database of inspections and you know like a starbucks you're supposed to they're supposed to do inspections like eight times a day well that was all done on paper before and i don't know about you but most people working at starbucks that i see are like 16 18 19 or whatever young they're not doing inspections eight times a day at the end of the day they're just like making it up you know no offense to starbucks but i'm just saying like that's how life is well now you move that to a mobile context it's time stamped it's whatever so a of compliance b now you have a massive data set in real time that these restaurant chains and so on can see in real time. Imagine if you're um, Chipotle, which gets rocked because like they have food problems, right? In the supply chain, things go bad. Well, that's all because of inspections, right? So imagine if you had that. Well, let me go back to government. So like now all of a sudden you have all of this inspection data across an entire food supply chain in the cloud. Government regulators have access to that data across multiple restaurants and so now all of a sudden, government agencies can stop being cops because they already know. We know in real time, hey, fix that restaurant over there. We can yeah. see the red, the red light is flashing because we can see it in real time. So instead of us being cops, we as government regulators can come to you and say, you know what, Starbucks, we talk to 50 restaurants a day. Here are 20 best practices you should implement, right? right? So the role there moves from cop to consultant, convener, right? It's moving government away from the direct provision of services. Every government customer we work with owns their data. We're not taking anything for anyone. We're like becoming an extension of what they, and then moving those employees up the value chain. So why are they doing manual work? Why are we treating 22 million people like they're some second class employees or something? Like why? There's a classic like, oh, the bureaucrats in government. I have, maybe I've met a few bad apples along the way. I am telling you sincerely, like people in government are really amazing, really they're incredible, smart. They're every bit as innovative as, you know, you would imagine as, as anybody else. It's just they have really crappy tools and we also don't pay them as much. So here they are doing amazing work. Well, guess what? Give them great tools, give them great data and they will move up that value chain. They'll stop doing the manual stuff because they don't want to do it anyway. It's disrespectful. Like who wants to go to work every day and be given crappy tools? Yeah. You wouldn't want that. And that's what, that's what's happening. So it's interesting when we talk about the role of government is it, you can talk about it from one element in terms of, you know, technology trying to make government more effective. But then you mentioned blockchain earlier. There are sub-segments that are trying to make government irrelevant. Yeah, irrelevant or smaller in some way. So some groups of the crypto sphere are trying to reduce government's control of the money supply. Absolutely. You know, there are people making, creating charter cities that are trying to make competitive governance so that you, you can switch easier. How do you relate to, to that idea? Yeah, and I'm, and I'm quite deep in the crypto world and I know a lot of those folks and, and it's all good. I mean, I think, I think those are really good. I'll start with saying those are really good influences, really good discussions because what they ultimately do is force a reexamination of what government's role is. I think that's super important. 
And as I mentioned earlier, you, you asked about the fourth generation. Yeah. So there are definitely going to be implications of those technologies radically changing the role of government, for sure. Does it go all the way to the point where we don't need government anymore, where government becomes some permissionless distributed, you know, the vision of a block? I really don't think so. And the reason I say that is because I think where some of my peers and friends in that world, they lose sight of the fact that like, you know what, we have lots of people who have disabilities. We have lots of people who fall below the poverty line. We have lot, there's just a lot of people in our country and our public education system. There's a lot of things that like blockchain will not replace a police officer. You know what I mean? Like at the end of the day, there's still a very human reality to managing society. You need some kind of entity to do that. We, we've all agreed that we've, that's government. That's what's going to help us man. Like we don't need to know our neighbors, 300 million of them, but we implicitly are connected to each one of them through this idea of a government. So whether it's government as we know it today, I think we need some kind of connective tissue between us. I just don't know that the blockchain is that connective tissue in every aspect of what government does. I think it will absolutely have an impact on, you mentioned the money supply, absolutely, as it should, because there's a lot of inefficiencies there, yeah. right? Why the hell are we all using fiat currency? And all? I get it. That's all good. I, I just think it's going to become another part of what government does until we can all find a better way of self-organizing, which I don't think there is. <laughs> I think we're going to be with governments for a long time, at least in my lifetime. Yeah. And how, how else will the government's role evolve over the next decade, do you expect? Well, I think over the next decade... We at the fund and a lot of my companies will be busy building the fundamentals. Okay. So I mentioned that already. There's just, let's just call it project rewiring. Okay. So that's what we're going to be doing. And that's an important part for governments because of the pressures they're under, the budget pressures, the delivery of service. I get all that. That's why I mentioned that already that they, and they're actively, that's why we've been successful because they're fixing all those things. But I actually don't know that that's what's going to consume government writ large for the next decade. I think the thing that really, certainly the politicians and the people that govern are focused on is largely what you see in the headlines these days, privacy, social media. I think that I've talked to enough of those people of the governing types, not the functionaries that we sell to, the governing types where honestly, many of them are confused. They are not technologists. They may not, you know, I went to school with Justin Trudeau, you know, I was at McGill with him and everything. That's great. How many Justin Trudeaus are there, right? Prime Minister of Canada is in his mid-40s, modern, young, you know, technologist, hip. That's fine. Great. Wonderful for Canada. Good for my home country. But, you know, with all respect, the head of the UN is in his 70s, you know, and there's lots of, look at our current president here in the US. These are not technologists. They did not grow up with this stuff. And so the world of social media, it used to be like, you get elected, you make policy, and then you like pass legislation is done. Have some lobbyists in the middle and that's about it. Now there's like a, there's like a, another estate out there, which is social media that's governing both opinions, people, bad actors, as we've seen, influencing elections, all that stuff. Governments are legitimately not sure what to do. That I think is when you talk about governing. That's going to be the area of focus for at least the next decade. You can see what didn't the UK government just release a report calling Facebook like digital terrorist, not terrorists, uh, uh, gangsters, I think they call them, or whatever. Something like that. That's a reaction to all that stuff, right? Yeah. So that's what governments are really focused on now. In the beginning, we started this podcast by saying it's a good thing that governments aren't super effective. Do you worry about making government, perhaps in the China GovTech fund, yep. more effective than they need to be, perhaps? No, you're absolutely right. That's a great question, right? If you think about it as a tool 
one could say, well, maybe with all this modernization, you're going to make autocratic governments more, uh, more autocratic. Here's the thing is I've been to China and I've had Chinese representatives in my office. I was just in Saudi Arabia a couple months ago, which was pretty controversial considering where Saudi Arabia is in the world these days. And the end of the day, you know, it turns out that one of the fundamental pieces, so I'll go back to Smart Procure because we talked about them. That procurement solution bundles together hundreds of millions of purchase orders, as I mentioned, gives insights. It is all based on transparency. You cannot have Smart Procure without transparency. And I've had certain, I won't say which countries, I've had certain leaders in my office. They don't ask the question in this direct way, but effectively what they're saying is, how do I get product X with the transparency turned off? And the answer is, you can't. So in our own way, we are one way or another baking in the transparency that ultimately I think these these governments will ultimately move towards, right? So China has obviously made... A lot of movement in opening their markets and so on. You can st- you can argue that their government is probably even more controlled today than it was 20 years ago with technology. In the long run, the tech will not work without the transparency. You can't. So you have a choice. You are running Shanghai, 28 million people, and you want to run that city effectively. If you don't, the people will rise up. The only way to ru- the only way to fix that city and work and run it effectively is with modern government gov tech tools. You want modern GovTech tools? At least all of our tools come with various elements of transparency, benchmarking, and all the rest, and it doesn't work without it. So here's your choice. So in that way, we're kind of advancing open policy without being, I'm not advocating for it. And I'm not, and by the way, I didn't tell all my companies build transparency and so we can fix governments around the world and make them more open and transparent and get rid of autocrats. No, we didn't say that. Just that's the way of the world. Data is moving in that way. Liquid data now makes it such that everything's more transparent. And you're, the, you have a comparative advantage the more transparent you are as an organization. You work faster. You build faster. You solve things faster. That transparency becomes – so all of a sudden, if you're a government that continues to hang on to a world of, non, of no, no transparency, keep going. See how long you last. That's the answer. Yeah. I think that's a good place to wrap uh, Ron, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. For people who want to learn more about your work and potentially work with some of your companies or potentially be a, a GovTech run company, where might you point them to and any any plugs you want to leave us with? Very simple. I, <laughs> uh, my wife makes fun of me. So the, the the fund is not very creatively marketed and named. It's called the GovTech Fund. So just go to GovTechFund.com and it pretty much says what we do. Twitter is at GovTechFund and it, you can just, you know, it's super easy to reach us. And, and I am a sole GP, so it's pretty yeah. straightforward how to reach us and and then there's, you know, there's now 21 companies. They're all on the website portfolio. You can feel free to reach out to any of them directly or, you know, have any conversations with them. But, you know, it's where I guess the last message I'll leave with you is, you know, it's a big space. We've covered that. There's a lot of, you know, momentum and a lot of change happening. But absolutely, I've been saying this now for the last week. We're still very much in the first inning. Yeah. This is super early. This is, I'm going to be doing this. I'm in my mid, late 40s now. I will, if I should be so lucky, I will be doing this until I'm dead. Literally 30 more, I mean, years, decades, because there's so much to do. Yeah. Just in the U.S., globally, I mean, there is so much to do. So that's that's where I'll leave you with. Perfect. Thanks so much. Excited to be in the scene with you and excited Thanks, to, do, to do more. Yeah, pleasure. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.